Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? I know I've been doing this kind of the same way at the beginning for years, for years, but I enjoy the consistency. I turn on the mic and I hear myself say those words and I'm in it. I'm ready to talk to you. And, and by the way, how, how is everything? Are you okay? Did you get it all done? You feeling better? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe you should like steam a little bit. Yeah. Neti pot. Did you neti pot? Did you get a flu shot? You didn't, huh? Well, I'm not going to say, look, who knows? But, uh, but you know, I, I mean, you should probably take one day off. I mean, you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't be at work today. Am I right? I mean, look at you. You're all covered in snot and you can't breathe and your eyes are watering and you're touching things. Maybe it's, maybe you should go home. Is, is, well, you gonna, oh, you think you'll lose your job if you go home? So maybe if everybody gets sick because of you, everyone can have the day off and you're a hero, a secret hero. Who am I talking to right now? What's happening, folks? I uh, ha- I have a couple of announcements. I do. I'm going to be doing some more small batch artisanal uh, local shows here in Los Angeles, starting with uh, uh, a show at Dynasty Typewriter on Sunday, January 20th. And we're going to add a bunch more. That's a small space. It's a great space. It's in... Uh, sort of near downtown Los Angeles. It's a little theater, and I'm going to be working through some stuff. You know, not issues, maybe a few issues, but I mean, I got to I gotta get ready. I got to get my head in the game. I got to get the hour thing together and do it. Uh, you know, we've been through this before, but since I've been shooting and kind of busy, I haven't had time, so I'll do a little residency over there at the Dynasty Typewriter. I'll let you know when that is, but I do know the one gig... And that we have on the books at this time is January 20th. That's a Sunday. You can uh, get the link to the tickets at WTFpod.com slash tour. We, we good with that? Come down. You can also usually see me at the comedy store on the weekends, but this will be like an hour plus set. Oh, I got I to gotta find some people to uh, feature for me. Remind me to do that. Um, what else? Sam Lipside is here. Sam fucking Lipside is my guest today. Sam Lipsite is a is a dear friend of mine, one of my best friends. Uh, it, and we haven't known each other our entire life, 
But you know when you meet uh, some sort of, I don't know if it's kindred spirit or when you have an understanding with somebody or where you just have such a deep mutual respect and an understanding of people. I don't know, man. I think Sam's a genius. He's a great writer. He's one of the funniest writers I know. If you like the sort of legacy of, uh, of uh, Barry Hanna, Kurt Vonnegut, Joseph Heller, Terry Southern even a bit, but just 70s style satire, fucking hilarious. Sam Lipsite. Sam fucking Lipsite. Sam Lipsite is so funny. I actually did, uh, I actually read one of his stories, The Worm in Philly, for the Paris Review podcast. Go look that up. Mark Marin reads The Worm in Philly. I loved it. It's so great to read funny material, but just also the, you know, he's so tight, man. You know, his prose is so tight and so his voice is so singular. I am happy to be friends with this man. And he's one of these guys. Sam is one of these guys. He teaches at Columbia. He's written like, I guess, four novels now. Let's see the subject, Steve, Homeland, The Ask, and the new one, Hark. Hark. This book is hilarious. They're all pretty hilarious. There's there's no doubt. He's got a collection of stories called The Venus Drive and another one I think called The Fun Parts, is it? I think, yeah, The Fun Parts. You should read, oh, he just wrote a story actually that I just read in The New Yorker. I just read the, a new Lipside story called Show Recent Some Love, which was hilarious. I, look, some of you people trust me in terms of, of my taste and uh, and and I'm I'm not misleading you. I you can start anywhere. Go go read the short story, the new one, and then you know you can pre-order the book. Hark is you can go to harkthebook.com. He's going to be touring. Sam's going on a tour. He's going to be touring bookstores in New York, Washington D.C., Brooklyn, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Corda, Madera, California, Los Angeles, Tulsa, Austin, Oxford, Mississippi. Princeton, New Jersey, Boston. You can go to harkthebook.com. You can pre-order the book. You can read some advanced praise. And uh, you can check out his tour to go hear him read, which is hilarious. Sam is a guy that when I go to New York, we sit and talk. And this is actually, he's been on the show like three times, partially. Like smaller interviews. He was there at the very beginning He was on episode 10, he was on episode 52, and he was on episode 196, which was a live one, and none of these were a full WTF interview. Also, he was on my old radio show, Morning Sedition, quite a bunch. Anyways, me and Sam, when I go to New York, we go out to eat, we usually, lately we've been having Greek food, and we just talk, And, and it's something we enjoy doing. We sit and we'll talk for you know, maybe an hour or so at dinner, then we'll walk and talk for another hour and then maybe we'll have coffee and we'll talk some more and just let it roll. Let the thinking and laughing begin. And I've I've seen him through a lot of books. I think I met him right after the subject Steve came out and then in Homeland, he wrote a lot of that book in my old apartment, which I had left in Astoria that was pretty empty and I just let him have it as sort of a, a writing zone. And I think he sat in the kitchen and uh, and wrote some of uh, Homeland in there. And I don't know, y- y- you know, there's, I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, I've had a, a, a few fiction writers on here, but very few. And, uh, and every time that Sam writes a book, I get very excited. 
and I'm excited again. But this, I'm what I'm really excited about is this is the first time that we've talked, you know, at, you know, for the whole thing, the big the big WTF interview with my buddy Sam Lipsite. Yeah, it's going to happen any second now. It's going to happen. I like to read some emails where somebody who who is uh, not prone to writing emails and and almost like you know feels like like he had to write it because you know it just it had to be done uh writes me an email yeah I'll, I'll read that the subject line was a grabber not a ball licker i just wanted to say and then into the the body of the email your ability to make guests feel comfortable through your intrinsically connected experience is astonishing. Paul McCartney interview was transcendent. Robin Williams interview? They ought to put that in a time capsule. I'm just scratching the surface. Buddy Hackett's son interview? I don't think you even comprehend how good that was. I'm not going to list them off. You know how good this shit is. Let me just say this. I'm constantly amazed at how much you make your guests feel at home through kindred moments and flat-out shared experiences. I don't know any other way to put it. You rock dude it matters not but i'm a 61 year old musician from detroit trust me motherfucker when i tell you that it takes a lot to impress me i just feel you need to know that you have touched my soul paul p.s i have never ever sent an email to a quote-unquote celebrity i think it's safe to say that my record is intact thank you paul for just feeling like you had to do that because i'll tell you honestly paul uh made me feel good it may you know I'll, I'll take it i'll take it you know in these days where things are tentative <laughs> the where the existence of the planet I'll, I'll take it thank you paul i'm glad i made a difference so all right so i i think i've told you enough about sam i love him as a person i i uh, i respect him as an artist uh he is one of the funniest writers i know and uh i'm thrilled with this new book, which I read immediately. You can go to harkthebook.com for his tour dates and for pre-order. You can pre-order it now. It actually comes out next Tuesday, January 15th. You can also check out the other books I mentioned, The Subject Steve, Homeland, The Ask, Short Story Collections, Venus Drive, and The Fun Parts, the latest uh, story over at The New Yorker. Have a few laughs. He fucking deals with all of it. And now I'm going to deal with him and we're going to deal with us and we're going to deal with all of it. This is me talking to Sam Lipsight in a hotel room in New York City. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I used to sing in a rock band, so I'm used to 
little yeah. bit of this. Yeah, do you feel it coming back to I you? I feel back when the you, surge. When you, I did a thing where I put my whole mouth over the mic and scream into it. Oh, really? So you made that horrible, distorted yeah, exactly. noise? Yeah, exactly. And the, the sound technicians did not like that at all. That was back in the uh, in the days of Dung Beetle. Dung Beetle, yeah. Was that what it was called? It was Dung called Beetle? Dung Beetle, yeah. You were uh, exploring the freedom <laughs> we were, we were, of the form. We were pushing the, uh, the boundaries yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for those few people. <laughs> yeah. You pushed the boundaries. For about 12 people. <laughs> but did, uh, did Dung Beetle ever record? We uh, recorded a few things here and there, never a, a full record, but we did some singles and some. we were on some a soundtrack for an independent film, things what? like that. Oh, really? What yeah. film? It was called Half Cocked. And uh, it came out in the 90s, and it was... Same 12 people enjoyed that movie? Do you remember the band... Uh, well, there were a lot of bands that were on the soundtrack, like the Grifters. I don't know if you remember them. Kind of? Yeah. What uh, year are we talking? I'm trying to figure out... When people ask me about music, it's sort of like, was I even doing anything but wandering around doing I guess comedy? it was mid-90s. It's a, yeah, I might yeah. have missed the whole... I think I missed most of the 90s. It's sort of a, it's sort of a movie about a fictional band that gets in a van... Oh, okay. and, go, and goes, and then the filmmakers were in bands too, and they used songs from friends yeah. who were also in bands. And so right. it was kind of a celebration of a certain moment and a sad moment, maybe in, yeah. in American well, indie rock. Uh, that moment, what is that? It was actually really a, just a moment. It, it was, was like about a like, year. It was more like three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> like. For some reason in the 90s, I just I missed everything. Like LCD sound system, I didn't even know they existed. Well, they didn't exist in the 90s. They but didn't? No. What was that? They, well, that James Murphy. He's who, a friend of yours, Yeah, right? he is. And uh, he he worked with us and uh, with Dung Beetle. He worked was, with Dung Beetle? Yeah. James Murphy did? Yeah. See, that's clickbait right there. That's going to break the Click music away. press. Yeah. They're just James Murphy, Dung Beetle connection Well, I was just revealed. I was just with him the other night, and we were talking really? about who... Do we listen to that music or who even talks about that music? Which music? Like, just whatever was going Dung on. Dung Beetle? Dung Beetle, yeah. <laughs> is anyone right now in this world is there that, one person uh, watching that movie wondering, there, who's this band? Is there one person playing the Dung <laughs> the, Beetle single? Probably on not. A, on a record player. But you know what? I bet you Lady Madonna is playing somewhere. Absolutely. Or uh, or even, like, I would go as far to say that you know, with the Beatles, maybe somewhere right now, Paperback writer, which was you know, which is a B side, I would think, is probably playing somewhere. But Dung Beetles, what was your hit? A hit? I don't what, think we had a what hit. was your single? Uh, well, we had a we had a song called "The Man Went Out" that was very. The popular. Man Went Out. Oh, yeah, it was very popular. It was uh, the line was taken from "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." If uh -huh. you remember when? Uh, when Chief threw the. No, no, when Billy kills himself, oh, I yeah. guess, and someone says, "The man went out," and that's. That's what it's based on. Well, that's that's what that's not what the song's about, but that's where where the line comes from. You guys were thrilled when you thought of that. Yeah, that's got to be a song. You it guys, was pretty cool. That's that's a song. <laughs> the man went out. Yeah. So. So wait. So what did you and Murphy decide? Uh, well, he went on, of course, and became a really no, important but I mean, rock star. You saw star, him yeah. last night, and you were talking about the music. And what, like, what was the conversation? Well, it was just you know this music, these bands. What was it? Who, yeah. who listens to it now? It doesn't get talked about, sort of. I'm not talking about Dung Beetle, but... You're talking about that moment. Yeah. Of What would you call that moment? This sort of like art, rock, punk, matrix? Something like that, yeah. A kind of... Who are the other uh, rock outfits we're talking about? Dung Beetle, the Grifters? Well, I wouldn't even put the Grifters in there, but, you know, there were... Uh, there was a band called Rodan, I remember. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. There was other, you know... Uh, 
a band we played with a lot was called Six Finger Satellite, mm. and uh, they were they were an amazing band. Yeah. Uh, we played with the the Jesus Lizard at that time. That one I heard of. Yeah. But well, now I'm that old guy. I don't know Six Finger Satellite. They were great, and the the guy from Six Finger Satellite, John McLean, yeah. went on to become. He has a group called the Juan McLean now. Uh huh. So, and it's but it's more like kind of dance music. But it sounds like you're keeping up with it. Well, I keep up with the stuff that my friends have, are doing now, but I don't keep up that much. You don't listen to it, but you heard. I listen to I listen to what they're doing. You I, do. I, I'm not, I'm, but I'm not deep in any scene or yeah. really up. So Murphy, I mean, I might check in on Pitchfork like every other American, but that's about it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even know they existed. I, I'm, I'm surprised at how far out of the loop I really am. I, I know, like even when you just, I don't know. Brendan like knows a lot of things. He seems to fill his brain with stuff. And I, but I guess you just hit random people, and they all assume like you know everyone's doing that. I don't know if everyone's checking in on Pitchfork. I don't know if they are. I mean, I'm talking about 15 years ago. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I try now. I just I ask my son. Like yesterday, I ask my son who. Uh, yeah, he's 14, and he only listens to rap. I guess. Yeah, who's this guy? He's really into, uh, you know. Travis Scott or ASAP oh. Rocky or ASAP Rocky. He has an ASAP Rocky poster over his bed. And, really? And ASAP Rocky fell on him during a, a show, so he feels a special connection to him. <laughs> that's a life changer. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's going to define things that you don't even understand <laughs> no, yet. No, it's shaped, it's shaping him <laughs> yeah. deep ways. Yeah. Well, the, it, that happens though. You never forget that shit. No. Like what? what like, do you have a music moment where you, you're like, you know, that's it right there. That where you 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 had the experience, the revelation. I'm going to be a fucking punk rock singer. Well, I I think it was more. I don't know if I had. I used to scream into a hockey stick in front of a mirror when yeah. I was you know ten or eleven. Sure. So I, I you know I was imagine. I before I even saw a show, I was kind of imagining. Yeah. What that experience might be, but uh. Why was there a hockey stick in the house? Because I we played street hockey in the oh, driveway, yeah. But, in Jersey? Uh, in Jersey. What part of Jersey? Northern New Jersey. We've covered this probably yeah. in personal conversations, but if uh, what county? Bergen County. So not far from Morris County where my, my grandmother lived. No. What town? There's a town called Closter. Closter. Which is a weird word, but it's Dutch, I think, and... Uh, you think you should know? I mean, I know it's oh. Dutch. I'm just using that generational. I think to sort of soften the blow of certainty. <laughs> I think there's something. As I get older, I'm starting to think that much of what's important uh, came out of New Jersey. Well, New Jersey has is densely populated. Yeah, and so the chances of something interesting coming out of New Jersey are just higher. Yeah, because there are just more people crammed in there. Italians, Jews, all sorts of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then just the hill people, the hill people, indigenous people. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And there are, you know, they. I keep hearing now about. And it's other, an old state. Well, I keep hearing now about because of the election. You know, there are five Floridas. I'm sure you've. Oh yeah, but there are a lot of New Jerseys. Sure. Too, so. On on there's like five Jerseys on like a two block radius. Exactly. There's several Jerseys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not the same anymore. I think there was fewer Jerseys. When people would have to go out into the street and walk around a little bit, but now everyone's just like bunkered in, hunkered down in their house, looking at their internet. But before, well, now you're talking about 15 million New Jerseys or something. Well, like that's that. sort of yeah, what it is. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. their own, you know, piece of property. Everyone is their own New Jersey. Yeah, their own New Jersey. <laughs> everyone is their own New Jersey. That's the that's the new album by yeah. by Dung Beetle. <laughs> Maybe Springsteen will do a guest track. <laughs> 
He'll do one of fifteen hundred <laughs> guest tracks. He'll say one word. On your, you'll you'll sample just him going, uh, "Hey," and then, and then when people pick it out, like, "Yeah, we sampled that from a Springsteen." Yeah, because like I guess I should. I think we met because it feels like we've known each other for centuries, which we probably have. It's just there's some people in your life that you know, like you you know, we go back to you know Rome, probably somewhere. Yeah. Right. Who, you and me? Yeah. 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 Ancient Rome? Yeah. 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 You know, we were complaining. <laughs> I don't think this is going to end well for the Jews. We're, were... <laughs> Maybe we were Christians then. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't... <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We, maybe we, we were new Christians. We were like, new, I don't know yeah. if this thing is great. Well, new Christians were basically just Jews. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. what, know, do we, what, what do we change? Yeah. Do we have to change? Is it, is it a different sandal that we... <laughs> what's the big change i just don't want to be one of the guys that's not part of the group but uh no but i met you do you know what year it was yeah i do really Um, vaguely i think it was uh 94 95 it was a little later i was uh your wife and my girlfriend were friends my ex-wife and your ex-girlfriend were friends yes deborah and kim yes were friends so that was after i moved to astoria already i feel like it was here we were still in new york we were still in the city I think we were, but we we met a few times. Yeah, we, I think we went out. We may have gone on like some double dates. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, and, and then you and I, and I was, and then those relationships ended, but we remained friends. And then we were both in Astoria. No, right, but like I remember the the big change. See, from- what happened was I when my Deborah and I broke up. I moved out to Astoria. That's when I moved out to Astoria. But the bigger thing was that I remember that it was it was, it was like mid to it was probably just past mid 90s so i didn't get sober till 99 and at that time you were sober and i and i reeled you back in i was the satan yeah you you did (laughs) (laughs) and i i i feel like i i i should apologize for that i should make an honest amends (laughs) for making you smoke pot that day in the park you do remember that yeah i do (laughs) You probably, how could you forget it? I that, remember that. I was like, come on, man. We, uh, like, what a fucking monster. But but fortunately, and I'm, I'm happy to say that it didn't send you back. It to, didn't spin me out into some terrible life after that. No, but, I think uh, I think it actually, I think you were actually appreciative of it. Like I somehow like just eased you back into you realizing like, well, maybe I'm not as bad as I was. And it turned out you weren't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, what was it? Okay, so you grew up in New Jersey. Your dad's a sports writer and a, a popular, well, maybe a aspiring young adult fiction writer. Well, not aspiring, a very successful YA writer, I think. That's what it's called, YA? Yeah, I mean. But what was the book that, <laughs> he were, that, 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 didn't, that didn't get uh, published? What was it, Enter the Fiddler? Oh, that was... That was much later. He wrote a, he. I mean, he's a he's kind of a legend in the young adult writing. But isn't world. he also a legend? And, in but the he's even writing? more of a legend as a sports writer. So, Robert Lipsight. Yeah, Robert Lipsight, who wrote he wrote a column for the New York Times for many years, and he was very uh, important in the. He's one of the uh, kind of first. I don't know if first, but one of the major sports writers who really started to kind of talk about things outside of just the game talking about right. the sociological the political the economic implications of of sports and he also his big his big story that he kind of covered forever was Muhammad Ali right and because he when Ali first sort of 
came out and said, I'm not Cassius Clay anymore, I'm Muhammad Ali, and, and took certain political stands. A lot of the older sports writers started attacking him, and but my dad would listen to him and took him seriously, and, and they formed a, a, a sort of, I'm not going to say a friendship, but an understanding, and, and my dad had access to Ali for many years. Did he come over to the house? No, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't right. like that. But uh, did he go up to the training camp? Oh yeah, no. I mean, he would go and yeah. cover him in, at, di- at different points in his life. And he wrote a, a book, an important book on Ali. Well, he wrote a book about Ali. He wrote a book that's just actually been reissued, and I'll plug his book. It's called Sports World, and it's, it was first written in the seventies. But it's sort of his magnum opus about you know sports and society, and and uh, it's a it's a pretty incredible book. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but the weird thing is, like, like I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I yeah, don't. I mean, uh, you are a little bit. Am I? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I'm not a sports guy, right? And yeah. you're not really either. No, I mean, I growing up, I probably was into it a little more than he was. He was not really into sports. I mean, he he had found himself in sports. Yeah. But, but he just wanted to be a writer and a journalist and yeah and think about things and right. but he. He, was, he got a job at the New York Times when he was a kid, and they put him in the sports department. And I think he maybe thought he would you know, move on to something else, yeah, politics or whatever, but right. he ended up staying there and building a career there. But he's not a guy who ever sat around and watched games right. or kept track of anyone's batting average. Right. Or he, didn't, he, he, he liked the stories around sports, and he liked the, the human interest and the, all the other stuff, but he wasn't a nitty-gritty sports fan. And I, when I was a kid... If I'd be, you know, on a Sunday afternoon sitting on the couch watching a a football game, yeah. he'd come in and say, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Why are you sitting around on your ass watching a football game? That's the dumbest fucking thing you could do with your time. <laughs> yeah. And that's, so that's so did he have the a world. So of- everyone says to me, oh, it must have been amazing growing up with him because you guys, you probably had tickets to everything and he took you to every game and taught you everything about it. And I said, no, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he had a tremendous amount of self-loathing around his lot as a sports writer. And he had to elevate it into an intellectual exploration just to live with himself. Well, we all do that to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so, but what, but what was the, he told you to get off your your ass? But what was the suggestion? What did he want you to do? Well, he, it wasn't he wasn't against sports. He was like, go out and play a sport. Go out and run. Oh, go out and do something. Right. Breathe some fresh air. Right. Get some exercise. Read a book. Whatever. But don't sit yeah. and watch these professional guys bash each other on TV. But when so this was in Jersey. Yeah. And what? So you got a, you, a younger sister, who I know, right? Yes, yeah. Susanna. And it's just the two of you. Yeah. And you're growing up in Jersey. Yeah. And your your mom and dad stayed together for how long? They were together till I was uh, a sophomore in college. Right. And uh, but um, she my mom was a writer too, and she she during that time she published a novel and did a lot of journalism. And Which novel? It's under called, it's called Hot Type. Under was, what name? Uh, Marjorie Lipsight. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and she was what year was that? Was it like seventies? Seventies, yeah. That time, late seventies. Was it a, a a sort of a feminist novel? It had yeah. I mean, it had a kind of 
she was a feminist. Yeah. She wrote for a feminist newspaper, and it was, she had been a- Is that first wave? Is that considered been, first wave? I guess she was second wave. Like, uh-huh. I, she was a reporter, had been a reporter at the New York Times, where she met my dad, and so she, there was a novel that was kind of autobiographical about being a young woman working in the 60s at, at a big metropolitan newspaper. That's that's what that book was about. And is it uh, available? I mean, yeah, you can find it. It's not in print, but it's available. Isn't that weird about books? Just how many there are. Like, I find that about records, too. You're like, who the fuck is this guy? And then there's one or two people who are like, that guy's the most important guy. Yeah, no. It's, <laughs> well, it's amazing how much you, how much you can access now. They're, they're, you can really get everything. So you're growing up with two writers, so you had no choice. You, you, what, what happened? You had a rebellion. Well, I, mean, I, had, I had a choice. I, I, I mean, my sister's not a writer. What did she do? She's a lawyer. Oh, that was smarter, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Got to turn and run. I mean, I tried to. Uh, what you do is you find a way to be a writer, but not the writer that they are. Right. You find a, a new path. You right. Hope, you hope, but. But what was the process? Did you write in high school? Yeah, I mean, I think I was kind of a. I figured out a way to write really well when I was young and get lots of pats on the head and stars on my papers and what what, what and, were you writing early on was well i mean it, whatever i was, was writing there poetry involved yeah there was a little poetry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no you have to you have yeah. to i think that 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 the poetry is an exercise especially when you read your prose it's important to understand it or to at least is i think it's important as a writer to have an experience with poetry where you're like i see why this gets through well, I think that, I mean, I had a teacher who said, if you want to write fiction, you should read poetry. Right. You know, you, what are you, you want your sound to be as close, even as a prose writer, you want it to have poetic elements. You yeah. want it to sound, you know, have the, have a, a music to yeah, it. Yeah, right. So uh, I'm, I've guy? always been going for that. I think that there was a period just in high school where I kind of learned how to write short stories. I yeah. read a lot of New Yorker short stories and... I was writing, I guess my point is I was writing a lot of stories about experiences I didn't know anything about. I was sort of mimicking a lot of what I read. Who were the big, who were you mimicking mostly in high school? I mean, probably the 80s minimalists at the time, you know, Raymond Carver. Oh, yeah. And people like that. But, uh. Could you drop some more names? I want some more names. Because I don't know them. Uh, at the time, like people I, that, I mean, Raymond Carver, yeah. Bobby M. Mason, Frederick Bartholme. Yeah. And then later I discovered other writers who were, uh, more like what got called postmodernist, like Robert Coover and John Hawks and uh-huh. uh, Thomas Pynchon and people like that. But uh, anyway, my point, I guess my point is I, I kind of learned how to write a certain kind of story and win prizes for it and stuff like that. But I kind of got disgusted with myself at, at a certain point because I felt like I was, it wasn't really coming from me. I was just sort felt of- Felt like a fraud? I felt a little like a, a bit like a fraud. In high school? In high, well, at, in college. Uh-huh. After, so I kind of turned away from the writing for a while. So, wait, so and that's in high when school, I got into the 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 music stuff, the real stuff, the visceral. Well, it was it was also a way for me to like scream but not be heard. Like I didn't want my words to really be heard. <laughs> <laughs> so you really turned on writing. I really turned on writing. <laughs> and then after that, that was when I kind of rediscovered writing for myself. When you know I was no longer the son of these writers. I mean, I still was, but I'm just talking about. Kind of that that moment where you realize why you're doing something. Yeah, you're not doing it for other people, and you yeah. realize they don't. In the end, and this was a big lesson to me was realizing nobody gives a shit. Yeah, you know, the people who love you, they want you to be happy, whatever that means. Yeah, and they want you to have health insurance, and they want you to. <laughs> but they don't care whether like 
you write that short story that you've been thinking about or not. You know, right. All when, the pressure that's coming from yeah. the outside. Yeah. Mo- most of it's imagined. They're not. All yeah, you're projecting all of it. You're projecting all of it. So it was that realization that nobody cares, mm-hmm. and ha- and that's a very liberating thought. And then it's well, then you have to ask, ask yourself, do I care? And if the answer is yes, then you really go. So do you do? It. it seems like this is something that. I, like that, those three steps. Do, you know, uh, do they care? Am I making up what I think they're thinking? And then that's step one. Yes, I am. Step two is, um, does anyone care? Yeah. Do I care if anyone cares? That's step two. Step three is, do I care? Now this, this to me is a daily thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some people call it prayer. <laughs> Like, like, I understand that it was. Some people call it philosophy. Yeah, looking back at it, yeah, you know, there's, yeah. this is a moment where you remember, but I remember that from earlier today. Yeah, right. That was that was eight thirty this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, I'm not saying it's a one time <laughs> no, experience, a, but around writing, I really, I mean, maybe it was daily for a while until I really got a sense of what who you know who I was in all of this. Sure. But so like so in high school you're you know you knew that this is this was your thing and you had a you had a knack for it right. you worked at it and you know you aspired to it and there there's and I a, succeeded on a high school level at it. But there's nice you know edible competition to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very you know the other thing is realizing like you can kill your dad but it's really exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but like you can't really kill him. No. So when you when you do it that way, when you do it through uh, dads are zombies. It's true. They, they yeah. Come, they keep coming back. They, well, yeah, that's <laughs> that is true. Both of our dads are still alive, and that's a nice thing. I, it took me a while to realize that, but it's a good thing. But the weird thing is, you can win a certain battle. Like you can't kill. Like you know, they can yeah. eventually acknowledge. Like, all right, so you did. You you did what you set out to do, and yeah, maybe you've right. e- eclipsed me a little bit. You, you know, but that doesn't really kill them because once no. you get past that, you're, you're still looking at them and you know, in their mind, they're like, I'm still here, fucker. Yeah, exactly. I'm, <laughs> I'm not dead yet. How you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I already like went I was, through what you're going through, all the other was, stuff. Raging Bull was on TV the other night. Oh. That moment where he's like, you never put me down, Ray. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. never yeah. put me down. <laughs> never knocked me down, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> just insanity. And Ray's just looking at him like, all right, yeah, you fucking that's weirdo. That's relationship with <laughs> <laughs> that's fathers and sons yeah exactly so early on you weren't like for, like me like i you know at some point i was like i'm not going to college but I, you know i just was you know kind of locked into some sort of towny dream for a minute there until i panicked but growing up with not academics but people who put a premium on you know intellectual activity did you were you ever one of those people where you're like i'm not gonna i'm done you, you always knew you were gonna well, go to I college i wanted to go to college because i thought it would be a way to get a out right I, I, I want i mean it was a nice town i grew up in but i was ready to to go go somewhere else yeah and meet some other people and i kind of i had this fantasy that turned out to be just that that you know when i went to college everyone would be interested in the things i was interested in and care about what i cared about and and there were a few people but yeah then there were a whole bunch of other assholes too you know just like anywhere else right <laughs> of course <laughs> and you went to brown yeah See, like I, I never, I didn't have a lot of choices when I, uh, you know, decided to go to college. You know, and there was, and Brown's an Ivy Leaguer, right? 
Yeah, I think it's called. It's known as a minor ivy. Minor <laughs> ivy, but it's also known as a sort of like you know heavily liberal arts kind of a celebrity children thing. Right. Well, especially when I was there, it was it was the eighties, and it yeah. was you know getting covered in the media as the hot school, and people hadn't really paid attention to Brown before, but suddenly, yeah, yeah, there were like celebrity children, the royalty was there. There yeah. was you know, uh, so it was a place in the, in the phone in like the student phone book. It said you know somebody's name and then just come and then princess of Greece. Oh, really? stuff like that. <laughs> but this is, but this was, but it was for, it, I wouldn't, I mean, sometimes was, you ran into those people and sometimes you didn't, but it wasn't, it, but see the thing is that's always been the case with Ivy league schools like Yale and Harvard have always yeah, been yeah. sort of like the educational facility for aristocracies and tyrants and dictators, families and what it, it was a place to get everybody the good education. But it seemed like Brown was sort of like, we got this one bad kid. Yeah, this, for, this it, princess is problematic. It was for like ruling class fuck ups. There's, there's definitely a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was some of that, and then there was a kind of intellectual, kind of you know, clove cigarette smoking kind of thing going on there. Maybe more than at some of those other schools. Uh, it was very big into. Uh, there was a semiotics department. And yeah. There was theory, and so you went in there immediately without you know, really any context you were reading all of these French deconstructionists and, and, and getting into some, if you were, if that was your kind of major, if you were kind of an English major kind of person. Oh, so they, yeah. because of the nature of the school and that it was more, yeah, you know, it seems like the, the regimen was different than some of the bigger Ivy League schools. Right. Well, you weren't necessarily like, I feel like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you're really being trained to, to run the world. Right, right, right. And Brown, it was like you were there to be the black sheep right. relation of the person who ran the world. I never became a, a, a disciplined intellectual of any kind. Like, I, I don't, you know, I understand the words you're saying, and I think I have an idea in my mind of what they mean. Yeah. But I did not. Uh, I, I I got no training. So when well, you say postmodern and deconstruction, yeah, they, like, just, you, know, I mean, you could probably explain it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but for years, I was sort of like, why don't I know about that? I was the guy that, you know, had. You know, I, I didn't fuck right. off in college. I, you know, I, I did well. I graduated with honors to a certain degree and I cobbled together a English degree. But like when it came right down to it, I was on the Lower East Side in the late 80s and early 90s with all the semio textbooks. You know, well, trying, that's the same the trying same to put stuff. it together. Yeah, yeah. But like, but without any sort of guidelines. Right. So like, I'm reading this book now, this by this guy David Shields, and there, there's I know a, David, yeah, yeah. There's an element to it there that he clearly comes from that, and I'm having the exact same experience. I enjoy reading the lines, and I think I have an idea of what he's saying. But obviously, there's a whole context, not unlike the language of philosophy, where he knows exactly what he's saying, and I'm just sort of like, I kind of get it. Well, I mean, I felt that way coming into college. I was given these texts, and I didn't really have a way to relate to them, and. So, th I mean, it was some of it was mind blowing and some of it was really alienating. Yeah. And I didn't you know, I wasn't you know, I wasn't coming from the ruling class. So I, I couldn't, you know, fuck off, fuck off. But I, I took tried to take it seriously. But I was trying to uh, grasp it all. And some of it, you know, I think there's, it, I absorbed some and some of it uh, definitely helped shape my worldview. But it was kind of a general I mean, it was not that different from, you know, any kind of vaguely Marxist progressive worldview you might get. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, and uh, and there was there were definitely levels that I didn't I didn't get to. With well, it. well, yeah, because if you do get to those levels, then it, it becomes your job to uh, to sort of continue pursuing the, the depth and range of those levels. Like, you know, I imagine if you get to a certain level, 
uh, of understanding of that kind of stuff, you're required to commit your life to it. And well, the, teach it, it. it becomes a kind of priesthood or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. That that as time goes on, no one gives a fuck about. It. Right, and it's it's losing traction even. Yeah. Which Even is the, the Church of the Deconstruction? Yeah, the deconstructivist. I mean, I mean, this stuff's been around for 30, 40 years. It's yeah. not, you know, I, people rage about it now and people rage against the postmodernists now. It's not like the postmodernists are running anything. anything. So I, I, I don't understand all of the. I, I'd, I'd like to meet some of the people that are raging. See, like, I, yeah. it's sort of like. It's well, a, I'm thinking of, you know, even if you look at. People who are getting a lot of attention now, like a guy like Jordan Peterson, if you're aware mm-hmm. of that guy, you mm-hmm. know, and he will rage against the postmodernists, and and I think he his feeling is, you know, it it has filtered down into the identity politics and and all of that, but uh, it probably has, but it probably has, but I mean, I you know, I think I feel like that's just kind of a a straw man in, in, in a certain way. It's a straw man, and it's also like a a, a bit of of. of pseudo intellectual hodgepodge that is making it uh, that has been made accessible to uh the people who are you know pretty fucking stupid in terms of uh education but now are have become enabled through language and through funneling it through their own anger to kind of like half make half-baked arguments with the proper language and and then it becomes really problematic yeah i mean people are just throwing terminology around to right rile rile up well, now when you have a sort of audience, right, and and then you have a, a certain group of people that are able to say that you know actual facts are a good theory, yeah. <laughs> it's, then it becomes problematic. But they, but I don't think we should get lost into that shit. So, but I do want to talk about the the relevance of of writing because you know you and I are not. You're you're a little younger than me, but like obviously our our heroes are in the same sort of time zone um but like when you when did you start was it when you got to brown that you started really to sort of dig into the guys that informed your writing the most well i think i when i was in college i definitely encountered a few writers that would have a lasting impact on me uh writers like barry hannah yeah stanley elkin yeah uh Grace Paley, Thomas McGuane. Uh and then I became uh very much a fan of a I discovered a journal that was coming out called The Quarterly that was being edited by a guy named Gordon Lish, who was a famous New York City editor. Yeah. Uh he had edited fame you know, Raymond Carver. That was very controversially. But uh so I I I started sending stories to this magazine I just wanted to get in and I'd get these really nice rejection letters and I just kept sending and sending from Gordon from, from himself. Go- yeah. And, uh, you know, you write little notes, you know, just keep trying or keep yeah. going. But, uh, and so that, uh, encouraged me to, to keep going. And, and, uh, so even while I was, even while I was doing the band stuff, I was still harboring a, a little desire so, to, to get involved with this. And then eventually I, after the kind of things, my life kind of fell apart and I was rebuilding, Wait, so it? we can't just like that—that's not the thing you just kind of skirt over. I know. Yeah, so. I, I was going to backtrack to it, but oh, yeah. Were, okay, yeah. so after your life fell apart, well, a bunch of things happened. The band fell apart. Well, we, we got to, we got involved with drugs. We and, didn't get to the beginning of the band. So, okay. so the band starts at Brown. Uh, after a little bit after, yeah. 
So you're at Brown. We're living in Providence, and we're doing this band. And you're like sitting around smoking cigarettes, being angry, sweating over mirrors and lines of cocaine. No, not really. There was no coke, really. It was oh, just really? like beer and cigarettes. Yeah. And, uh, and playing at local clubs and hanging out. With but who was the guitar player? A guy named Rob Reynolds. Uh-huh. Uh, who's now a painter in L.A. and a really good friend of mine. But uh, Is he a good painter? He's a very good painter. Big painter? He paints big and small. Abstracts? Uh, he does all sorts of things. He does, some, he does some abstract things and some figurative things, too. I wonder if he knows my girlfriend. He might. So he's a, he's a painter. And so who was on drums? Uh, a guy on drums, was a, his name was Bruce Cooley, but we called him Bruce Oyster Cooley. And, um, sure. He... Uh, <laughs> Just oyster sometimes. Just oyster. <laughs> yeah, he had been actually our our TA in a class, but oh. we kind of dragged him into this. And, oh uh, yeah, he was a little bit older. Yeah, and um, and then on bass we had a a guy named uh, Nicholas Butterworth. Sure. And uh, although he went by Big Jimmy Fingers at the time, oh, we all course. had rock names. What you was know? your rock name? Sam Shit. Sam Shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Or Sam Beetle because it was yeah. Dung Beetle, but I sort of <laughs> did both. Uh, <laughs> So the birth of Dung Beetle, <laughs> they were all RISD guys? Or no, they were all brown guys? Um, they were all, yeah, they were all originally brown guys. Right? Uh-huh. And uh, what was the manifesto? Well, the manifesto was just to be kind of weird and crazy and never wink at the audience, never let them know that it was a joke. Oh, okay. That, that just seemed very important to us. So. Uh-huh. Um, and never, and just kind of to be as alienating as possible while still being entertaining. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like we wanted you to have a good time, but you know, to feel bad, feel disturbed on some level. And, and did you have a following? Well, those 12 people we talked about, I know, but <laughs> it was really just 12 or like, yeah, people would show you up. were part of a scene. We were part of a scene. We, like I said, there was a band, six fingers. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We were in Providence and then we moved, we moved the band down to New York after about a year, but you were still at Brown. No, no, we were done. We were, we, we had graduated. So we, Oh, I see. So, so after Brown was over, we spent a year in Providence playing around in clubs there. So you did your degree. Yeah. And you you wrote your stuff. You got through Brown yeah. with a degree in what? English. Yeah. English major. And you'd publish some stuff in, during college? Just, no, not really. College magazines maybe, but nothing. Okay. Yeah. And afterwards, you're like, we're a band. And we're going to New York. We're well, first we here. spent a year in Providence. Okay. And yeah, then, right. And then we went down to New York. It was serious. Yeah, we were serious. I mean, I don't know what we didn't know. It's not like we were serious, like we thought we were going to end up on TV with this, but we were serious about wanting to keep playing and keep playing in clubs and and, and keep pushing the envelope with the uh, fuck you-ness. Well, finding interesting ways to say fuck you because it's easy to say fuck you in a boring way. But so, what, who were the musical influences? If we were to listen to Dung Beetle, we'd be like, oh, you know, this sounds a lot like. Well, the Osmonds. I don't know. <laughs> you must have seen yourself on some sort of continuum. Yeah, I mean, it was punk rock. It was, uh, but it was, I mean, also we were all coming from different places, but, you know, we liked bands like the Laughing Hyenas, like the Gun Club, if you remember Oh, the that. Gun Club. I yeah. love the Gun Club. Uh, so, uh, the Jesus Great Lizard. The Gun Club was so good. Yeah. The Stooges we loved. Oh, yeah, know? sure. So yeah. It's that kind of, if you can find that then so when did the wheels start coming off after about it i mean it was i think that a couple of us started to be interested in other things you know started to think about the guitarist was thinking more about painting yeah. at a certain point the yeah. bassist was thinking about politics and uh -huh. and 
and uh and we just started we started to lose a little bit of steam and we started to lose that uh that team feeling that i think we sure. had and that, drugs were getting involved and drugs were getting involved people you got all drugs. fucked up i got pretty fucked up and for how long not that long but long enough for it to to you know screw up my life Did you get scared yeah <laughs> <laughs> were you uh were you like i don't know how much you really want to talk about it i'll be diplomatic about it but uh were you uh strung out i mean there were not for long periods but for good enough periods i was you know yeah thinking about what am i gonna do today to get the money to yeah. to not feel shitty right let's put it that way and that that became the job at times that's and that became you know a full-time job and what did you do for the money to get the stuff to not feel shitty sell stuff <laughs> Sell my belongings. Oh yeah, you know. So he's getting sparse. <laughs> things got. Good. I mean, and we knew things were going bad when the drummer started selling his drum kit one piece at a time. So, <laughs> claiming that it was, you know, because he was into a more minimalist sound, but <laughs> a more minimalist sound of just what's going on in his head in the corner of the empty room. <laughs> so it got down to just the snare. Exactly. You're like this has got sort of a military feel. I don't know if that's what we're looking for. Yeah, right. <laughs> So it and but it got to a point where you're like I've I've got to clean up yeah and you did it yeah and that's when you started to rethink the writing yeah I mean I kind of was doing all sorts of things to make money including uh, substitute teaching at high schools and and I was and this is also a point where my mother uh, had had she had been in remission from breast cancer for about thirteen years but mm. it came back and it was it was got pretty bad and I was living I just kind of I was sort of at the rebuilding my life and she was in this bad place so I moved in with her in Jersey I, no this is now my parents had divorced and they both lived in the city uh-huh and so I kind of took care of her oh. uh and then and was taking trying to take care of myself at the same time right and, and um and it was a kind of ama- an amazing time it was I mean I'm glad it ha- worked out that way that I was able to be there and, well it's good that you're sober and not taking her medication that that was a good <laughs> Could have gone the other way. It could have gone the other way, but the timing was right. So <laughs> I was I was a help rather than a hindrance. And so um, really, you nursed. And we her? helped each other. Yeah. You know? And then what do you mean, how so? Just by well, talking I mean, emotionally, yeah. Oh yeah. Being there for each other, and then and she, you know, but it, you know, she got sicker and sicker, and and then and then she died. Yeah. And you were there the whole time. Yeah. You were the primary caretaker in a way. Yeah. Wow. I can't. Like, yeah, it's. Uh, and, and and what what affected that? I mean, it must have been like I assume because I can only you know speculate, but like to sort of process that and go through it, it, it must have brought you closer and may, given you a deeper understanding of something. Well, I mean, part of, I, it gave me a deeper understanding of her. Yeah, which which I was really grateful for because you know she'd been my mom and I, you know whatever a lot of other, you know, and I, I'd known her in so many ways, but now I kind of got to know her in a new way and kind of understand her as a person Yeah, a lot more, you know, I'm sorry that it took this for, right. for that to happen, but, but you had, you, 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 sadly, but also in, in some bittersweet way, you had the time. Yeah. And we did have, there was time, it, yeah. you know, it was a period of a couple of years. So, and you uh, probably, because of like what you just, the identification probably was so strong with your dad. After a certain point, you detached from your parents and you realize like, you have no idea who they are. Yeah, and exactly. and you were able to sort of know her. Yeah, that's great. Know her, and, and 
in a way, I'm getting to know my dad now in a way that I wasn't able to before when I was filled up with all sorts of feelings and resentments. And, yeah, resentments and, you know, uh, independence. And, yeah, and, like, yeah, sort of necessary defiance or right. distancing or whatever. Pushing, pushing, pushing back. Pushing back, yeah. Yeah. So, but that, but that was a very key, I think, moment in, in my life was that time with her. Yeah. And then... And then after that, and but you know, I really didn't start to really write seriously and write the things that I would eventually publish until after that. Yeah. She died, and then I was kind of then, in a strange way, that was the final. Like, well, nobody really. The only person who really truly gave a shit is dead now. So <laughs> now, now it's on you. Now it's on me. Do I give a shit? Yeah. Yeah. Who am I doing it for? Yeah. But it must have like. I, I imagine that that experience kind of uh, helped humanize and define the darkness a bit, right? Yeah, you know, because there is sort of like there's that one short story where the the junkie dude shoots up his mother's ashes, right? That like there, you know, I, I imagine it would be hard to think of that comedic device if you could call it that, or 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 make it sort of poignant and funny without having the experience that you had both with your own life and with your mother passing. Right. Away. And I mean, that was, a, that was a important story for me to write at that time. What was it called? Cremains. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I think that I, you know, my experience had been, I'd been kind of at that point anyway, sort of a good son, Yeah, but I didn't want to write that. That's right. not interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was been done. I was more interested in writing about, you know, would it was kind of a story it was a, almost like an alternate history of what if i had you know stayed on a bad course right. and and had the same right. things experience with my mother you know? right so that was that was kind of the imaginative right leap yeah that's a good one and uh and i didn't know the i wrote this, i was writing the story i told this before but i was writing it and i didn't know where it was going and then as soon as he shot up his mother's ashes, I was like, "Oh, I guess it's over." I guess like <laughs> <laughs> where you go from there. Yeah, exactly. I guess the story's You've over. You've done it. <laughs> it sort of circles back around to what I keep circling back around to, but without saying is that, you know, when I I talked about our, our our own heroes and about who they are, when you talk about people like Stanley Elkin or Barry Hanna or Dennis, uh, what's his last name? Well, I mentioned Thomas McGuane, but uh, McGuane. Were you going to say Dennis Johnson? He definitely. Yeah, Dennis that Johnson. That book was certainly a. And an McGuane, amazing of course. Thing to read. But these guys, like you, and you know, I brought up. What did I bring up with you? Oh, the Brodigan book. I I dug yeah. up, and I was. But like these guys were this this pantheon of these seventies writers. Yeah. You know who like to a certain group of people were were, you know, incredibly important and culturally relevant. You said you went to Philip Roth's memorial, right? I did go to. That, yeah. yeah. And like, I just wonder, like, you know, how how they defined culture when they were alive, because it seemed like the there was a good part of culture that was sort of intellectually bent. Uh, well, I guess you you know you mentioned the seventies, and you yeah. think about books and movies yeah. and all of it together. It's yeah. this, it is there's a kind of cultural feeling that I guess we both feel yeah. steeped in and feel right. formed by, and yeah. I definitely. You know, we grew up in it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. We, I grew up in the '80s, but it was really the '70s. I was paying. You know, the, what yeah. was had been done in the '70s that was uh, what I was marinating in. Yeah, and then when you like, I guess like in terms of like your own books, that there's this 
this idea like we I know who the writers uh, some of the writers are that you are in the world that you're in your generation or whatever and even the ones that are really big you know I, it's still sort of it seems like an insulated community like when you say someone's a priest of deconstructionism right that there's still this world of literature that I feel like gets more and more you know specific and insulated you know what I mean that it doesn't have the the cultural resonance well, that it once had. That's really true. And I always say, you know, I think there was a time when, uh, you know, there was a particular book or a particular movie or a particular right. record that, you know, when you went to the party, you just had to at least pretend to have right. experienced. And I think that that's still true, except the book is off the table. You don't have, there's no, you never have, you don't have to pretend to have read a book at this point. Well, no, it seems, <laughs> right, that's or true. Or a novel, anyway. No, I, I think yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. But also I think what's happened is instead of, having a common conversation about this thing that's supposedly important it seems like the the real uh uh you know conversational premium is is knowing something about something that no one knows about like you know sort of like oh you didn't see that it's like i didn't even know it existed no of course you didn't like there's it's not right you you know but maybe in in the world you run in that's still with movies or whatever but it seems more that people like there's no there's no common thread that, you know, there, there's so much shit well, out no, there. No, we're that, all in the, our niches. That's all. Right. Like, then the niche can be very small. Yeah. And so there's no common thread. There's no there's no main narrative we're all commenting on. I mean, besides the political one. Which right. We're right all, now. We're all, that's yeah, what, but that's, that's just that's, that's, that's what we're all looking recent. at. Recent. Right. You're into these books. You're into right. these movies and they or, and these books over here and they they don't necessarily touch each other. Well, I think that's what like that's what's great about the new book, Hark, about the new novel is because you know, I have you know, having watched you go through the other novels, the subject Steve, the first one, well, first is Venus Drive, right? The yeah. stories. Yeah. And those are stories and they're great and they're dark and they're, you know, they're they're solid. But then subject Steve is is not as accessible as Homeland, right? It's a little like fragmented uh, not yeah. in a bad way, but you were doing something. What was I doing? <laughs> what, was, what was I doing? <laughs> well, no, I, I, I mean, I think like, see, like, I, like when I read Elkin or I read some of these uh, other guys, like Elkin is not really an easy read. I mean, one writer I didn't mention that I think the subject Steve was probably uh, indebted to is Delillo. I mean, oh, Delillo is the greatest, yeah. right? Right. He's a he's another Lish guy. Well, they they were friends. I mean, I wouldn't say Lish really shaped yeah, was, Delillo, but you know. Uh, and well, like a book right? like White Noise or something, you know. Sure. Yeah. Right. White Noise. Yeah. Exactly. That was the first Delillo I read, and then I read all of them at yeah. a certain point. And the, and but that was the one that really was his big. Finally, that was what what his fifth novel, probably something like that. Yeah. Because the other ones, it's it's just, it's just right. So it, fragments not the right word. I don't know how to talk about novels that much, but it wasn't insanely accessible. No, I mean it. <laughs> It was trying to do certain things, as you said. It was it was structured in a in a weird way. It was these kinds of diary entries or these itemizations they were called. Yeah. The, and so, um, you know, it, I you know was trying to get to a lot of. It was doing a more kind of cultural analysis than some of the other, right, books maybe. And but but then but I think now you you've come back to it. But you, your voice is so you know well defined and and also I think more broad. Yeah, I mean I think uh, yes, I, I see what you're saying. I think you're. I agree with you. I think there's a bit of the subject Steve in Hark, but with more of the character stuff and more right. of the human stuff. Right. Brought in and more funny. 
and funnier. Yes. Yeah, because they like the, all the comedies. The characters are very well defined, and and the the humor because the characters are are not only believable but familiar and and sort of well defined. Yet the humor has a lot more punch to it. Well, thank you. <laughs> do you do you know what I'm talking? Uh, about? Yeah, I mean I'm going for that. I want... <laughs> that's that's the effect I'm after. So in your personal arc, like because I've just watched because like Homeland was funny. But like um, Homeland was really driven by this ridiculous voice. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was very funny. Right. Because the guy had a chip on his shoulder. He had a chip he on had... his shoulder. and was about like reading through his bombast. And yeah. Through his his mania. Right. And then the ask we get into this other world where you're sort of like, it, you know, you've got the guy that's trying to, you know, you know make it, uh, you, you know, just survive life. And he's in this weird world of uh, of of servicing rich people yeah so it's just kind of like this walk of shame through the whole book <laughs> this kind of <laughs> series of humiliations that reflect i think what a lot of people feel in their working life and their and i think during, in that book that the ask which i loved but i just see the natural evolution of 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 sort of like dealing with the ideas that you like to deal with but like somehow or another the characters become like I in this book, as I told you before, like I I don't I'm not going to mistake you for the right. main guy in the ask. I'm like I, that's Sam, and then there was actually a part where like that's actually a conversation I had with Sam. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> I never tell anybody. I'm not particularly <laughs> proud of where I was at at that time, but the, that beat that you used in the book was hilarious because <laughs> that's not a problem I'm having. <laughs> I don't even want to tell people which one it is. They can figure it out. But this book, the guy, what's the protagonist's name? Not well, Hark, the other guy. Fraz. Fraz. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can see. There are aspects of me in sure, there, but sure. like, it's a lot of different people. And I don't mean that in that usual fiction writer evasive way of don't pin me down. It's It, it really, I am drawing from a lot of different. Sure, the experience things. of being married and having two children. But and, that's, you know. yeah, I mean, there's emotional autobiography there, right? You know, it's. Right. A lot of those feelings are feelings I've had. The situations, not so much. But I just feel in this book, I guess not unlike you know white noise in a way that you were able to sort of get it all in, you know, get you know politics, culture, you know, spirituality, the exploitation of spirituality, right. commercialism, you know, all these you know tech, yeah, you know, like that. The entire you know sort of chaotic but defining cultural landscape that we're living in, which seems really hard to wrap your brain around. You were sort of able to harness it through this he's not even a charlatan he's he's almost a a haphazard uh spiritual yeah, leader yeah i mean <laughs> right yeah and then there's a kind of revelation at the end about who he really is but <laughs> yeah yeah but, and, and it was very satisfying that yeah. and to me that's the trickiest thing and i think i don't know uh, not as somebody who talks literature much or or claims to to even you know study it but it, it seems that w when you're dealing with a novel that has you know, definable characters. That's not abstract. That that third act is the trickiest one. How it are you going to end that? How fucker? do you land it? Yeah. yeah, but like you landed it great. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that was a that was a leap, as they say. You know, that was. Uh, should I do this? That was a moment where I thought, I'm, if this is wrong, I'm really fucked. No, but, but it was yeah, satisfying yeah. because, like I said, like you know, like from before in talking about about poetry, that if you have laid the groundwork, I, I think there, in again, not an academic, but 
you know, you have a certain amount of, of freedom with poetry to the, to the point where, you know, a lot of times you can't determine whether it's terrible or it isn't, right? But you'd laid all this groundwork. So to take the leap that you took, you know, just poetically is sound. So like, yeah. you, you know, whether or not there, the, there's, the, the logic is going to hold or if it's believable doesn't really matter, does it? No, I think <laughs> that it's, I mean, you're, what you're talking about is just a general storytelling idea, which is do you earn it or not? Right. Yeah, but you earned it, and yeah. you're sort of like, I guess he's going to do it that way. And <laughs> yeah. That's fine. That's great. Good. Yeah. And um, But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I was trying to, it took me a long time to write this book. I started it in 2012. Really? And so it wasn't something I, I mean, it was something that was, I kept layering things into it, and, and uh, it changed a bit as I went, and my conception of even what it could be altered a lot, and... I, I like that it took a while and I like that those layers are there. It creates more texture and creates more space for all of those themes you mentioned and also creates uh, or allowed me to work on those characters and, and make them as dimensional as possible. Yeah. And I, I think they're, they're the comedic device of it. A lot of them that kind of move throughout the book, the, the changing names of local restaurants. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it does sort of, um, it kind of guts the reality re- we live in a little bit that yeah. you, and that we're all such suckers for such bullshit, you know, so daily and almost seems to change every day. But, you know, the, the sort of what really the, the continuum, the, the thing that stays is like, you, you know, Fraz's problems, right? <laughs> you know, and his particular character, you know, his emotional problems and his, you know, his sense of insecurity that no matter what is shifting around you or how complicated the world gets is that at the end of the day, you're still that guy. You're still you. Yeah. <laughs> but like what elements like, you know, Gordon Lish is this sort of uh, kind of infamous character who ran these writer workshops. Yeah. I mean, they were. Yes. They were these... me, is that the word wrong word? No, no, no. I was just it was I was thinking about workshop because we didn't really he didn't go over your writing that much in these classes. He more lectured and spoke about writing and then sort of it would go for about six hours each session and then at the end he'd ask people to read from whatever they were working on and it was a very uh nerve-wracking experience is he still alive yeah and uh and and he would listen to what you were writing but really point out immediately where you were going wrong and uh, he was harsh and he he, didn't he wear military garb too or something i wouldn't it was safari garb maybe (laughs) it was uh he was a character, a New York character uh, that written a lot of books. Well, he wrote he wrote a lot of books. He edited almost all the writers I cared about at some point or another. Um, and he, when he was ed- editor at uh, Esquire and Knopf, he published most of the writers I care about. So he was someone that I looked to as this is a guy who has who had already helped shape what what I thought was some of the most exciting uh, writing in in the last. 50, you know, whatever, 40 years of, of American fiction. So uh, he, and he was an incredible, and I, he still teaches a little bit, I think, but maybe he hasn't in a while, but he was an, an incredible teacher. He he really gave of himself. He gave everything he had. He list, He had the most best ear I've ever encountered. He could hear everything you were doing. And uh, he he taught you how to really, I always say he taught us how to listen to ourselves, mm-hmm. which was the most important thing. Um, because I think that before then one is writing and one sort of doesn't even one writes and writes, but isn't even paying attention to 
what you're doing. Right. You're and, just and trying also, to get to the next thing and you're not staying in the moment. Or else you're sort of elaborating to a degree where you're entertaining yourself but not necessarily honoring yeah, what, what you want to what, say. And what you've put into motion. It's a yeah. very, the idea is you begin with these elements and you have to follow them. And you can't, if you're going to veer away from them, you have to account for that. And, right. And the thing, the thing that I have found, which is what I like about what I do, is I get to, when I begin, write a first draft, that's an improvisation. Right. And that's like, that's that's a performance. You're talking about a 200, 300 page performance? Yeah. But yeah. then you get to fix it. You get to yeah. keep working on it and keep fixing it and revising it. Yeah. And so you get the best of both. So with something like, with Hark, where did that start? What was the uh, the, the driving idea? I think I began with this idea, this kind of silly idea of mental archery. This, yeah. you know, just this image of people doing these so this is your sort of satirical riff on on yoga, or, all that or, stuff. Yeah, I mean, and my my wife is really into yoga, and we yeah. talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Right, and uh, you know, I've tried to do it, and you know, maybe I was thinking of a a yoga I could do, which mental archery. Well, seems I, like. well, well the thing <laughs> yeah. that's so funny about it is that you 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 sort of you know flesh it out enough. To, you know, historically, yeah. with 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 bullshit and, and actual facts, yeah. that you you created a history for this idea yeah. that that becomes a spiritual idea. That was a lot of fun. That yeah. that that part of it, sort of naming the poses and doing the historical background on all of them. And also, it, it you, it's vague enough to be you know open to almost any interpretation, right? Which is you know how which this is guy the secret to a lot of these yeah. things, yeah. And how this guy becomes put in the position right of being a, a spiritual guru well the idea of hark himself is he's someone everyone can project upon and so different characters have a different idea of what mental archery is and what it means and what it can mean for them and for society so yeah. some people see it as a more private practice a more spiritual private practice. Yeah. other people see it as an agent for political change yeah other people see it as a as a way to bring communities together and everyone you know everyone's projecting onto hark some people see him as you know hark this kind of old style shaman some people yeah. see him as this you know new leader but everyone and then there's I, the, the the forces of capitalism and technology that want to exploit swooping it. in to yeah. commodify it yeah. yeah so he's but he's you know one of those guys who can be everything to everybody right yeah except like who is he who is he and, and he's just like i don't know <laughs> It's almost, it just reminded me. Well, he says, like, I just want to help people focus. That's yeah. what he keeps saying in the book. And everyone's heaping all of his Everything other stuff on top. Everything will be good in the garden. Yeah. He's, it's a little like, yeah, being there. It's a, he's a little bit of a, of a chance the gardener type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just thought of that when we were talking. But so it, it started out with mental archery. That was the idea. Yeah, that came to you in a flash of some kind. Yeah, mental archery and then somebody kind of teaching it, going somewhere upstate to do a seminar. <laughs> And that was the 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 basis. Of well, that's it. how that's what triggered it all. And then I I was writing that, that there was a whole scene that didn't make it into the book. That was maybe the first thing I wrote. And then, yeah. But then I realized that this guy Hark needed some kind of sidekick, and then that's where the Fraz character came in. And then and then I had I had this other storyline. The, the the initial hanger on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The guy who saw something in it for himself. Right. But spiritually, and and like it, it defined his life. He's his, feeling this lack. Yeah, a lack. And he yeah. needs he needs to plug into something. And <laughs> yeah, it, here it is. <laughs> the lack. <laughs> and uh, and then I also there's another subplot about uh, a, a someone who transports organs 
around. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I met this guy who is a German actor who does this. You know, he he does acting jobs all around the world, but then he's also transporting organs all over the place. Hmm. It's kind of his side side gig. Yeah. And I became interested in sort of that. Uh, that right, there's a little subplot there. And so the, there's a yeah. woman who's one of the main characters is also transporting organs at, at different points. It's in the so book. funny that that at, out of the entire <laughs> book, I would have thought that would have been the one contrivance, but that's <laughs> actually rooted <laughs> yeah. in a right. guy you met. <laughs> like, where the fuck did this come from? And you're like, a oh, German guy. <laughs> and then you just, you, you just sort of move through the rest of it. I mean, like, cause I remember talking to you once before about where you start and you kind of start in the middle and build out. Well, there was a little, I mean, cause of that scene, you know, wasn't necessarily the beginning of a story it was showing them already established in their routines right then i'm like who are these people what is who are the what are their lives like where did they come from that's the building out you start to figure out though and and what's going to happen right and so that and that takes a long time and so i always say i kind of i'm writing sideways because i'm moving forward but then i'm always going back and playing with what i've done and then moving forward again and going back and moving forward so it's kind of this sideways crab like yeah movement it's not a straight shot. Sure, of course, yeah. right. But what's also interesting is because of the time that this evolved over whatever, what is it, five years, six years? Yeah, six, I guess six years. Is that you were able to integrate a lot of the cultural dialogue that's going on around, you know, gender and around, uh, you know, uh, feminism and around, uh, you know, um, paradigm shifting. Yeah. You know, active, uh, you know, patriarchic takedown. That there, there, it, it's not like a, a full subtext, but you, you address it. Like, cause I think there's a lot in this book that is, is very immediate and relevant cultural commentary in a very, you know, cutting but funny way. You know? Yeah. And I think it's stuff that was bubbling for a while and yeah. in the air. And it's not, you know. You didn't wedge it in there. I didn't wedge it in there because these characters were kind of naturally talking about this stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but then I started to see. Oh, this thing's heating up, and that aspect's heating up. Yeah, yeah. I, there was very few things that you didn't really touch upon. I think. I think you got it all in. I think you did it. So I'm done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, now you go back to much simpler things. Now, now you just sort of. Uh, now it just becomes about you on a beach for a while. And now you got to like because I think I don't know what you have to do. This book is just coming out. What do we got to talk about the next one for? Oh, uh, there is no next one. Yeah, that's no, it. I'm just saying. No, I mean I hope there's a next one, but yeah, I feel empty right now. Right, <laughs> you got to spend you, a little time filling filling back up. I I was just so uh, you know proud of you and and excited. You know because like I always love reading your books and I always uh, get a big kick out of them. But there when you when I as I know you as a person and also as an artist that, you know, when you see somebody just sort of go like, Oh, this, it's all, this was the next one. This was the, this is the one that, you know, it's all fully realized. Yeah. I'm not saying you're done, but I'm saying that. No, I want to feel like the worst feeling is, Oh, the, the third book was the best. And I've just been on this downward. I mean, and you're always going to meet people who like different books that you've written. Right. But you want to feel like... Yeah, but don't trust those people. No, you want to feel like this is, you know, I'm as good as I can be now. Right. And I'm... Exactly. I'm, I'm, as, I'm the best I've been now. And this is as good as I have done. That's what you want to feel like. Right. But, you know, that's weird for people like me and you, and maybe, I don't know, really for you. But, like, I know, you know, even if I did my best effort in the past... Yeah, you're... At the time that it wasn't there yet. Right. 
you know, I know that I don't tell people that necessarily, but when I look back on like, you know, like my choice to do uh, Thinky Pain as a loose sort of hour and a half exploration of things that, you know, some of which were not fully realized and, and, and but I wanted, that's what I wanted it to be. Right. I don't think it was a, a cop out or, or, or a rationalization. That was just how I was working at that time. And now like, you know, after I did that, I'm like, well, I'm going to tighten it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you know what I mean. Like that. That was a good experiment. You know, I'm glad people like it. It had its own quality to it. But I got to tighten it up. Yeah. And there's also this sense. I mean, at, when you look back at the end of everything, people are trying to make a story out of your career. Out yeah. Of everything you did, and oh, it went this way and built this way and yeah. reached this pinnacle. But that's not how you're feeling. You're just feeling like now I want to try this, and now I want to do this, and now right. I want to go go out in this direction and yeah. I want to go out in a different one and so you're not thinking of the the arc of your biography when you're making all these choices about what you're working not on. not insane insecure creative people ambitious people that are able to project that what they want their life to be and their career to be they seem to do that but uh, yeah I, so. I, like, I don't have that luxury you're not saying you know no. What would Mark Marin do now? No. I, I, sometimes I wish I had more of that. Yeah, I mean, that would help, actually. It's true. <laughs> Some people, they lock in. They're like, this is what I do good, yeah. and I'm going to keep doing this because it's right. making me money or whatever. And this is what people want. The benefit is, yeah. for us is that, like, you, you know, we, we haven't uh, locked into something that makes a lot of other people money. You know, the, right? You know. So you're not feeling that pressure. Like, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. Not, from us or other or the outside. You're not supporting a lot of families. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. yeah I've always uh, listen. I hate when I say I've always said that. You know, you don't make money until you make other people money. That's that's the sign that you're making money, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've sort of gone around that, so that that worked out. You know, like uh, like I, I I don't have to answer to anybody, but that we're not talking about me. We can though. No, I, I'm tired of it. <laughs> 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 well, let me ask you this, because like, you, you know, you teach like, the, you know, the one route that that people take, you know, in in your racket is that, you, you know, you haven't act like, again, this speaks to, you know, that planning or, you know, w w what what are you going to do with your talent that you know that you have and you haven't really sort of succumbed to this sort of Faulknerian, you know, journey to uh, to uh, to Hollywood. To Hollywood. To, well, you know, I mean, when people like me, you can write for TV, yeah. you can do, you can teach. Yeah. You used to be able to get by on journalism doing magazine stuff, but that's kind of contracting and it's yeah. not really viable anymore. So people are really, it's now it's television or teaching. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have done a little bit of the TV stuff, but mostly it's been most of my career has been teaching. Well, what, but what is your experience with it? Because I know some of your story, your books have been optioned, and you know, and and you maybe going to be made into a movie, which is fine. They give you some money, and you're like, hey. yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. They get a tiny bit of money, and some somebody has an idea for a movie. But, but wasn't there a point where you were kind of part of the process of making which one? Well, there's always been talk about the ask becoming a movie, but yeah. I did several years ago. I I wrote a half hour script that, yeah i remember that, yeah that hbo bought but nothing ever happened to it but there was i had this two-week period when i thought i was about to become this really successful showrunner yeah <laughs> and what happened and you can imagine me as a, i remember as a showrunner <laughs> <laughs> like what, what do i do <laughs> and so uh it was this it was almost like 
fantasy camp where like they make you you can pay to you know a thousand dollars and pretend you're a showrunner for a week that's what it felt like <laughs> <laughs> what happened with that um they just you know they what was it called it was called people city and yeah, it was yeah. just a it was a i wrote it in a couple weeks just my agent said why don't you try writing something and i did and they bought it right away but and then i was you know going out to tea with movie stars to see if i liked them yeah yeah know, right. that, oh that yeah yeah stuff. sure and then and then the you know who'd you go out with uh i had a nice uh a nice time drinking tea with uh michael keaton oh yeah oh he's uh, great he's great yeah but no, it was just this moment where they're like who do you know how do you see it sam what you know how are you going to realize your your vision and and um and then it was done yeah but uh <laughs> and it was it was fine but it was it was a it was a it was exactly the way it's supposed to go. It was like every story you ever hear about how how it didn't work out. Right. <laughs> so, so it, but did you leave doubting your vision? I had no. I mean, I had written a funny script, but I had no idea what I was doing, and had no place at that point doing. You know, it shouldn't have happened because I even didn't really have a vision for a whole show. You know. Well, that's where you call your friend Mark. Yeah. And you go like, what do you think we should do with this? I think I did call you. Oh, maybe I wasn't ready. <laughs> I think you did call me, but I'm like, I don't know. Do you want me to introduce you to somebody? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think that it was, it was just one of those things where they uh, were deciding between a couple shows and they went. Well, I think else. also what's happening now is that like, y y y oddly, uh, when I get opportunities to do that kind of stuff, you because of the podcast or because like you know you're teaching and you're still writing your books it's like you really have to ask yourself it's like do i want to throw fucking a year or two of my life and time down that fucking you know hole because well, i mean yeah. you can be locked into that shit for years and it doesn't go anywhere right you have to want to be doing that yeah i mean you have to that's what you needed to be chasing the whole time and i'd kind of stumbled into it and I wanted it to be like the old, my old idea of Hollywood with writers where they just paid you some money for something and then told you to go away. But they were like, no, we want you to be right. part of this. Yeah. And now, but the, yeah. but I think the, the, the point that, that I'm trying to get to in my mind is that you can do something on television and movies that is now because of the media landscape, they can immediately become equally as irrelevant as books. <laughs> right yeah you know well, there's I mean? so like, much of it right yeah. like you can do this amazing thing and nobody will see it well yeah because it is like now it's the same thing because i hear people everyone's talking about a different show and there's and they're saying i i haven't seen that i haven't heard of right yeah. where's that right that's right oh, what are you talking about it's the best thing on television it changed my life it's right that's the, the point i made earlier do you yeah, remember well, i'm just catching we talking? up to it I, i'm a little slow today <laughs> Okay, well, that's a good point, Sam. I, I, I don't. I, I don't know what you would do without my blazing insight <laughs> about the the, I, I, landscape, the cultural landscape. I mean, no, I, I just like that we know. were so immersed in some other conversation. Then that when I brought it up, it apparently it didn't, like re didn't register at all seemed, until you made it your own thought a half hour later. Well, that's well, good. When you first said it, I just said file that away and bring it back as your own idea. <laughs> <laughs> don't acknowledge that he's having a good idea <laughs> or that you understand don't, what he's saying just in that moment. blow by it now <laughs> circle back let it go through your <laughs> mill yeah. and drop it in where you feel like it's irrelevant but uh but i am i'm i'm doing some more stuff like that i think i might play around with that kind of writing well 
Well, good. But I, you know, I, I got an email from somebody, and I can't remember, you know, what it, whether it was him or his daughter or something. But, but somebody had written to me because I've mentioned your name and said that you know that either they were in your class or or and they said you're a great educator. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, I this is a big. It's the main part of my life. I've been teaching for. 15, 16 years. I remember years. when you started, though, yeah. and it was sort of like, I don't want to get sucked in. I don't want to. Oh, I'm completely, I'm chair of the department. <laughs> I mean, I'm sucked in. <laughs> but do you remember when you were struggling with the bureaucracy? You're like, I don't know yeah. if I can take now the politics. Now I am the bureaucrat. <laughs> <laughs> but what does that mean? I'm exactly? the guy at the desk making, you know, yeah. making things difficult for. But, but, but like you didn't jockey for that. Was no, it no. a process of no, elimination? It's a, rot- it's a rotation and everyone in the program all the teachers have to take their turn doing this kind of uh administrative are you going to be like tenured or i'm well it's funny you should ask after being there about 13 years i'm going up for tenure this yeah. year and do uh, they put you up or you asked to be put up for it how does that i work? didn't ask but they said you know we think you should go up for tenure um and so i am but it's it's scary because if it, something goes wrong with it if you don't get tenure you're out of a job what do you mean? Like either you get it, you, you don't it, keep working? They call it, you know, up or out. So, really? Yeah. But why would you be out? Because if they, if once you go through that process, if you don't pass tenure, yeah. then you have to leave. Really? Yeah. What kind of fucked up system that's, is that? That's the academic system. Even the, if you're a great teacher? Well, I mean, I guess they're deciding that. But, uh, huh. I mean, we'll see. I, you know, it, everyone who is in that world... Not everyone, but a lot of people in that world have to go through this process, and it's, it can be very scary for people because usually they do it after seven years or yeah. something like that. And then, you know, if they don't get tenure, then they have to leave and find it, find another job. Then you got to go to a smaller liberal arts college somewhere. Where well, writing. if you're lucky, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the other thing is, uh, my family we live in Columbia yeah. housing where yeah. I teach, so it's it's kind of yeah, it's all company sure town sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of that in the book too. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a it's a what was it what was it what did they make at that place? Was it waffles or? Uh, yeah, no, it's a waffle town. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> frozen waffle factory. <laughs> yeah, the company town, man. It's like Stuyvesant Town was a was that MetLife or what? What yeah. was it? One well, I don't know what it was, but it was the insurance like company. Yeah. I think. Yeah, but uh, I've always I mean a lot of my books I'm always interested in the individuals relationship to institutions and to yeah. the way you're kind of sucked way you are sucked in you know well but but i think that it's 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 sort of a beautiful thing that that you did you know after a certain point in time take to you know w- well, what the importance of of what teachers are well oh my God. i mean absolutely i mean the thing is is that i never imagined myself as a teacher when i was younger right and i love i love teaching you I do mean, yeah oh yeah i mean i'm really that's one of my happiest times is in the classroom. Yeah. You know, I, that to me is a refuge from everything. Now we're here and we're talking about stuff I care about and you care about and we're all here uh, trying to get better as writers. That to me is really exciting. Uh, so that was always a thing of, oh, pe- some people have to write. At, I mean, some people have to teach so they can write and it's what a drag. But no, that, it's been, that's been really thrilling. But that, was, but that was an evolution for you. Well, I had to find out that I was a teacher. Right, but also you had to also because I think that at the beginning, you know, that was the thought that it was some sort of concession. Yes, exactly. That it was a necessity. If I right. wasn't going to sell out or try to do that or or, or dilute myself or or become desperate, uh, you know, and have to pimp out or you know whore out my skills, 
you know you teach you know like there there's a, that 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 model you know as somebody with uh, a fiction writer you know always existed but it, it also implied that on some level i don't know if it's true or not but that you weren't a success yeah well that was the idea well the, they always said those who can't do teach yeah and but in my world like everybody teaches right you know, right but uh but there's always that hovering, hovering over, and then you find out that you really love teaching. Yeah, know, or one, I did anyway. Well, that's great. And and what do you try to impart in the kids in a general way, if you could, you know, in terms of approaching writing? That nobody cares. <laughs> Is that the name of the, your first class? That's that's yeah, that's the first class. That's good. If I ever write a uh, a book about you know writing writing, it'll be just called Nobody Cares. Yeah. Except you got to decide whether you do. Yeah. Do you care? Chapter yeah. one. Do you care? Do you care? <laughs> and do you see the the contraction academically in you know writing programs and the liberal arts in general? Well, I th no. I mean, ours has been growing. I think a lot of people, a lot of people want to want to study this, and a, a lot of people that normally, because of various socioeconomic factors or others, felt shut out of these kinds of yeah programs are kind of coming in and, and bringing new perspectives. And so, you know, there's more diversity in, in all ways. And so that's, I mean, that's something that's, I think, great. And do you find that most of the students are, are, are looking to, you know, build a life in, in writing fiction? Or do you think that, you know, that the... the, the I think they're real, a lot of them are realists and see that it's not like 1972 right, right now. Right. And um, it's a different world out there for a literary novelist or a short story writer and you know they're there are you know so i think some of them want to want to they want to write books but they they're thinking well maybe i'll teach or maybe i'll find some other thing to do as well right um and uh and i think a lot of them are i mean i remember this is a couple of years ago i i walked in on my class and they were already talking about stuff and they were talking about all these writers and they were dropping all these writers names and I, I didn't recognize any of them. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm really out of it. I'm not paying attention to what's happening in, in literature right now. And yeah. I really got to catch up. I'm really falling behind. And I kept listening. And, and then I finally said, who, who are these people? And they were all TV writers that they were talking about. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think they're savvy and they understand that that's, you know, but there's but, a place that they need to, Right. look into as well and also because you know there there's been a lot more space afforded that medium to to explore uh you know more literary things and, and yeah and i mean it, it there you can do a lot of stuff there it's not like you know we used to but you know back in the day you could only do things you could do things in books that you couldn't do on tv now you mm. can so there's no content you can't do on TV. And what do you and that's, think? So right. then the question is why, like why, if that's the case, then why write a book? And it has to be because you care about language. It has to be because you care about that medium. Right. And do you think that... that, that because there's no story you can't tell on television. But what you, can do on, what you can do in a book is capture the speed of thought and association and... and, and funnel it through poetic language right and that's so if you want to do that and that excites you and that has to be what gives you a charge yeah then then you're in the right place to be writing but i think that for all sorts of people fiction uh is is a really uh still an exciting yeah and um 
liberating place to, to operate both as writers and readers. And there is something that, that prose fiction can do that movies can't do. And I say this to my students when I'm teaching, I, when we're talking about even what's, what they're doing in yeah. a specific scene or saying, you know, would a movie do that better? Yeah. Because if a movie did it better, do something else. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're just describing a know race, the battle, I'm just like, is that just a reaction shot? Yeah. That you're giving us like, <laughs> do something else because yeah. we we have a medium for that. Yeah. Well, you do. You tell <laughs> yeah, them that. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the way they think. I yeah, imagine yeah, some of them. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So there's. But two- so in just just to say, I think that you know it it will always find new relevance and new right. meaning for new generations, and people are still you know, and maybe it's going away, but. People talk about the internet, bad, you know, the bad internet and all yeah. that stuff. But the fact is that people, through email and texting, are use are writing all the time. And yeah. So in a way, the the even the idea of exp- of expressing your way yourself through language, through written text, is something that's still still, happen- still it's, happening. Yeah. It happens more now in a way. Yeah. Because less people want to talk. Right. Because it used to be just the telephone. Right. And now it's everyone's writing a treatise. Yeah. Everyone's just to go yeah, out misreading to the tone of text. Exactly. Right. Well, <laughs> and then you have to learn how to be a better writer <laughs> to be a good just texter. to be able to like meet your friend for coffee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have that. That seems like a good, you know. Rationalization. I mean, it's it's you know borderline, no. but yeah, it's, good. <laughs> it's solid. So, do you are, have you decided on sections of the book that you're going to read when you go out and read your book? Hark! I've been playing around with a few different ones, but I, you know, I think you want to read one. You want me to read something? Yeah, read something, and then I want you to tell me on the mics that uh, Jewish joke you told me the other day. I'll just read the very beginning, and then I'll read another little bit. Okay. Listen, before Hark, was it ever harder to be human? Was it ever harder to believe in our world? The weather made us wonder. The markets had, the wars. The rich had stopped pretending they were just the best of us and not some utterly different form of life. The rest, the most, could glimpse their end on earth in the parched basins and roiling seas, but could not march against their masters. They slaughtered each other instead, retracted into glowing holes. Hark glowed, too. He came to us and was goldeny. It wasn't that Hark had the answer. It was more that he didn't. All he possessed, he claimed, were a few tricks or tips to help people focus. At work, at home, out for coffee with a client or a friend. Listen, before Hark, was it ever harder to find focus? Hark gathered his tips together, called it mental archery. Pretty silly, he liked to say. But some knew better. Some were certain he had a secret a mystery, a miracle. For what was mental archery but the essence of Hark, and what was the essence of Hark but love? In this hurt world, how could that hurt? The hunters of meaning had found no meaning. The wanters of dreams were dreamless. Many now drifted toward Hark Mourner. This is like the backstory. The front story is about a bunch of people and a movement they launched under the banner of Hark, a movement that maybe meant nothing at all, or maybe it did. It's tough to tell. The past is tricky, often half-hidden, like a pale, flabby young man flung naked into a crowded square. The past doesn't stand there, Grant ganders. The past clasps his crotch, scurries for the cover of stanchions, benches. History hides. That's its job. It hides behind other history. Great. That's the opening of the book? Yeah. I'm in. And then here's a, a little bit about a... One of the characters, Tova, and her kids. Yeah. Tova's on the train with the twins. She sits between them, keeps them yoked in relatively loose pro-wrestler chokeholds. 
They are temporarily immobilized and thus unable to assault each other or fellow riders, both of which with these maniacs are possibilities, especially this morning. Meanwhile, she texts emendations to her supervisor's proposal to the provisional head of development at the Blended Learning Enhancement Project. Her supervisor, Cal, possesses what Tova knows the business community deems leadership qualities, meaning he's equal parts fool and lout, a human facsimile on a ceaseless quest to collect his salary and cover his butt. Apropos of which, the reason she's here on the subway restraining her kids in semi-legal grappler grips, instead of already at her desk, is because one or both of her children have, as she put it as concisely as she could on the phone to the doctor, concerns of the ass. More specifically, assworms. Tova may have assworms too. What happened was that all of their assholes started to itch, and Tova looked this symptom up, discovered a detailed photograph of a hairy, nearly microscopic worm. Somebody had earned enough trust from this creature to achieve a lively, candid shot as the critter regarded the camera with unamused scorn, mostly expressed through what Tova supposed were eyes, but on further inspection might have been anal orifices themselves. Tova tried to call Fraz, but hasn't been able to reach him. He could be tutoring, or doing a favor for Mr. Dirch, or more likely, cleaning and jerking, perhaps at the gym, more likely at home. <laughs> Excellent. So funny, buddy. Thank you, man. And now to close, I want you to tell me that joke again because like uh, there uh, there's few jokes that, like whatever my decision is and whatever the history of Jewish comedy is, but there's the joke I told John Cleese, you know, which is, you know, when he went in he had a hat, you know that bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you t- I don't think you told me that. No, no, but yeah. I've heard that joke. Yeah, I've probably told it to you. I would hope. I think you did tell. Yeah, that's where I did hear it years yeah, ago. Yeah. So what? With the grandfather yeah, and the right. son on the beach. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what's? It, tell me the one you told me again, because I want to make sure. I, I think get I that. might have heard this first from Gordon Lish. Oh really? Twenty years ago, but well, I'm not what? as good a joke teller. No, you're as great. You, but, but there's a the old man. An old man's dying. Yeah. And he's at home, and uh, he's in his on his bed on his deathbed, and he's he's dying, and his his son, his grown son, comes yeah. to see him and sits by his bedside and says, dad, dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You've been such a good father. You've been such a wonderful dad. Is there there anything I can do for you now? Is there, do you need anything? Is there anything, anything I can help you with dad? Is there anything I can do? And dad says, Oh son, it's so good to see you. Such a good boy. You're such a lovely boy. I'm just so glad you're here. I, I guess there's no, there's really nothing. Well, maybe there's, there's one thing you could do for me, boy. Anything, Dad. Any, Dad, just tell me anything. I'll do anything. Well, son, I, I smell your mother's chopped liver coming in from the, the kitchen, and it smells so good. She just makes the best chopped liver. And, son, I mean, I'm, I'm on my deathbed. I don't know how long I've got, but you, you think you could just go into the kitchen and get a little of that chopped liver and just put it on a cracker and, and bring it back to your old man? Do you, th- you think you could do that, son? And of course, Dad. Of course, anything. I, I'll be right back. Of course. And the son leaves. A little while later, the son comes back, and he's empty-handed. And the the dad says, "Son, son, what happened? Why, why don't you have the chopped liver? What? Why? Why didn't you bring me back the chopped liver?" And the son says, "I'm sorry, Dad, but Mom says it's for after." <laughs> Yes, and that's it. That's the entire 
history of the Jews somehow. The American Jews. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy. It was good talking to you. Do you want to eat? Yeah, we should eat. What do you feel like eating? Uh, you no, want, no, no, what? no Greek this time. Do you want to go over and see if we can get, a, get a sit down at the uh, that Ross and Daughters Cafe? Yeah, it looked pretty crowded, but I think we could. What you walk by the one in Houston? No, they got a cafe. It's oh, probably okay. crowded down an orchard where you can sit at a table like a person and eat Jew food. Okay, let's go eat some Jew food. Okay. Sam Lipsight and me talking into mics in a hotel room in New York City. Love it. Love him. The new novel is Hark. It's available for pre-order now. It comes out next Tuesday, January 15th. All right, so uh, I will play guitar. Oh, man. Nothing original.